When God Opens a Door. The open door in the title of this morning's message and in common vernacular is an idiom for opportunity. The phrase itself may or may not have its origins in scripture, but the concept is a biblical one. In his letter to the Colossians, the Apostle Paul wrote, at the same time, pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. So in Colossians, Paul is asking for prayers that God might give him an opportunity to serve him. And in our scripture this morning from Acts, we see that Paul, what Paul does when such an opportunity is presented. Our Father, we are grateful for your word, for the truth that it holds, the truth that we need. And we pause now to sit quietly under it and to learn from you. We are grateful that when the Bible is opened, you are speaking. And you are speaking to us because you love us and you care for us. Help us today, would you, Lord, to hear what you have to say. We ask and pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Acts 13, 13, uh, if you'd like to keep your Bibles open, we'll kind of be going through the verses, but definitely not going verse by verse. You'll see what I mean in a few minutes, but Acts 13, 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. So we're 13 chapters into our study of the book of Acts, and I hope by now you're beginning to have an appreciation for the writing style of its author, who is Luke. Luke is an excellent writer, but one thing that we know about Luke, he only gives us the details that we need. He doesn't always give us the details that we might want. He has this tendency of introducing characters in his narrative, and he develops them and at least clues us into their significance later in the story. In Acts 12.25, we catch our first glimpse of this man who is called John, whose other name is Mark. Sometimes he's called John Mark. Later on, we'll come to know him as Mark, the writer of the Gospel of Mark. He joined Barnabas and Saul as they returned to Antioch after delivering the gift from the church to the brothers in Jerusalem. And then we see him again in chapter 13, verse 5, after the church in Antioch obediently, uh, obediently set apart Saul and Barnabas for the work that God had called them to, Saul and Barnabas head to Cyprus, and we find out that John is with them to assist them. And now we come to this morning's passage with the evangelistic work on the island of Cyprus complete. Saul, who will from now on be called Paul, and Barnabas leave the island. And they go to the mainland, and they arrive at a place called Perga and Pamphylia, which is now, for, for those who care about uh, things like this, modern-day Turkey, and verse 13b, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. John left them. We don't know why John left this work. And here we get very little sense of the nature of his departure. It's only later that we're going to get a hint of some sort of conflict. But even then, the, the nature of the conflict remains unknown. Only the results are obvious, and that is a fracture in relationships. John's departure will become a source of disagreement for Saul and for Barnabas, soon enough. But we're going to leave that for when we get there. I like to say we don't need to borrow any trouble. Suffice it to say here, we're just looking in chapter 13 at the emergence of something, the origins uh, or motives of which are unknown. It's going to come to a head, and it's going to cause 
division. In the moment, that division is going to be painful, and it's going to be difficult. And yet, if you're familiar with the Bible, you know eventually the rift between Paul and John would, in fact, be mended. For now, though, we have only the news that John is leaving the missionary work. And that his leaving seems to signal some sort of desertion, some kind of abandonment. So now there's just two again, Paul and Barnabas, and they're on the mainland, and then they head over a mountain pass. Again, Luke doesn't tell us this. The original reader may have been familiar enough with the territory to know that the journey from Perga to Pisidian Antioch would have uh, entailed going over a mountain range. Maybe Luke assumes that they know this already, or maybe he just doesn't want to make a big deal about what it can take sometime to serve Jesus. And if it's the latter, I think there is some wisdom in that, because we do sometimes have a habit of exalting our missionaries for their sacrifices. And obviously their choices can truly be noble, uh, to forsake ease and comfort, to carry the gospel to places that have never heard it at all. And we should be grateful for that. But we must also keep in mind that a person doing what a person is created to do, which is to bring glory to God, must not lead to person worship. A person doing what a person's called to do should not lead to person worship. More than ever making much of the players in this story as it unfolds in Acts, Luke consistently consistently makes much of the God who saves them and the God who inspires them. God is the star of the show. God is the one who is worthy of praise. God is the one you should be in awe of. I'm sure that the Apostle Paul would agree with that. And uh, from the seacoast, consider this. He and Barnabas climbed over the mountains God had made to get the gospel of Jesus that God had foreordained to people that God loved. And they arrived at their destination. They went to church. If your Bible is open, you see in verse 14, but they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. They're in a region that was predominantly Gentile, and yet for hundreds of years, uh, there had been a remnant, a minority of Jewish people who had emigrated there at some point, and they had um, continued to worship in the Hebrew way. So Saul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas, sought them out and went to worship uh, in the synagogue. And after they had gotten through the traditional liturgy of the synagogue, reading of the law, reading of the prophets, the rulers there approached them, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So here just to make sure you don't miss it, is where the title of this message comes from in my mind, When God Opens a Door. When God opens a door, and God surely does open doors for his people. And he gives us opportunities to serve him by serving Christ. And when he does do that, when the door swings open wide for you, Christian, what do you do? In the third chapter of his first epistle, Peter writes this, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Always be prepared to make a defense, pros apologia, to give an answer 
I wonder, do you feel like you can do that, Christian? Do you feel like you can give a defense? Are you prepared to tell somebody about why you believe what you believe, what, why you have such hope? Or if you're not, what's it going to take to get you to that place? To get you ready to give an answer for the hope that you have in Jesus. Because this is, this is part of the teaching, I think, here, is that when God opens the door, we have to walk through it. When, obviously, not all open doors are God's opening, are they? And you have to use discernment. But when God opens a door, and here these people have prayed about it, they're set apart for the work. When God opens a door, walk through it. Take the opportunity. These rulers asked Paul for a word of encouragement, for a word of comfort, a word of consolation. And Paul stands to give them the most encouraging words ever that we have come to know. And that is called the gospel. The promised Savior of the world has come. His name is Jesus. He is the Son of God. He died to pay for your sins and the forgiveness everyone needs and the eternal life everyone seeks is found in Him. Now that's not how Paul said it, is it? Steve just read that whole passage to you. That is not how Paul said it. What Paul did, though, in Acts 13 was give a history lesson. He's in a synagogue filled with Jewish people and God-fearers. So naturally, he's going to speak in terms that they are familiar with. He's going to speak on a topic they would have some interest in. He's going to connect the dots in a way that would be meaningful for them. And that's something for us to keep in mind as well, that when we testify about Jesus, we do it thoughtfully. That we do it sensitively. That we take into account the values of the people that we're talking with. That we try to understand them. That we try to understand their history. Maybe even the style of communication that is going to be most effective for them. Because the bottom line is when God opens the door for us to speak about Jesus, we want to speak and communicate in such a way as to be heard. Amen? This is not about just saying, well, I talked about Jesus today. Well, good for you. Did anybody understand what you were talking about? Was it helpful? Don't tick the box of evangelism. Was it helpful? Did it resonate? We want to be, as Paul is doing here, we see Paul doing this here. No one ever did this any better than Jesus. We want to meet people where they are with good news. And we want to help them see how the good news is obviously relevant to their situation. God opens the door of the city in Antioch, and Paul walks right through it. He stands before the congregation. And what word does he bring? He brings a word about the, the character and the nature of God. Sometimes we can get confused about what it means to share Jesus. Or to use a common term, I think, at least one that I, was, I grew up with and one that scared me to death. Witness? Everybody say that? Oh, you got to go witness. Ooh. I'm going to make you pucker up than someone to tell you you got to go witness. Sometimes we get confused. I know that that's why it was so terrifying to me because I was confused. I don't know what, but like, I don't think I'm that, I don't, I don't have much of a story. I'm not that interesting of a person. I don't think anybody wants to listen to me. And I don't blame them. 
Jesus said his disciples would be his witnesses, though, didn't he? In all Judea and Samaria, outermost parts of the earth. And we're watching that promise be fulfilled as we travel through Acts. But, beloved, what are the disciples witnessing about? Or what about what are they bearing witness to the gospel? To the life, to the death, the resurrection of Jesus. So you see, to witness is more than telling someone your experience with Jesus. And some of you have wonderful experience in conversion, and God has pulled you out of some devastating, horrible things and set your feet on the right path and saved you beautifully. And others of you would have to say, I don't have that remarkable of a story. I just kind of grew up in church, and I've always loved the Lord, and, and I'm a Christian. Well, it's not about your story, is it? Ultimately, it's about his story. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's, he's, the most compelling story that you have as a Christian is the story of how God in Christ has loved the world. That's the story. And that's the one we want to get good at telling. That's the one we want to make sure is in our back pocket. That's the one we want to be prepared to share when someone asks us to give a reason for the hope that is in us. Our, the most compelling story we have, is, if we were to use the words of John Newton, is about amazing grace that saves a wretch like me. That's what it is. It's about him. As Paul addresses the people, and, and, uh, and notice, Paul has quite a conversion testimony. Remember that? Remember that whole Damascus Road thing? Okay, he's got some amazing story that anybody would want to sit and listen to and would be in awe of and might be convincing. But as he addresses the people, his message is unmistakably about the nature and the character of God. The activity of God. That is what it means to witness. To share the gospel. And then having shared the gospel, to trust the Lord to do with that gospel as he pleases. Remember from last week, we talked about sharing the gospel. Some will be open to it. Some will be opposed to it. And some will believe it. You do understand it's not our job to save anybody. It's definitely not our job to coerce somebody into some sort of faith or belief. That is God's work to save. And so we just share his truth and we leave those results up to him. We preach the Lord Jesus. And God will save who God will save. And we desperately hope that God will save everyone who hears the good news of Jesus. If you read through our passage for today, you'll see some 16 or so mentions of God and what he has done and what he is doing. I, I could encourage you to go back in that passage at some point today with a pencil and just do that and circle all those references to God and he and what he did who he was, how he's mentioned, what he did. Because Paul just wants us to know, wants his hearers to know, Luke wants us to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God's fingerprints are all over your life. Starting in verse 17 and hitting on some of the high spots. He's the God of his people. He chose our fathers. He made a great nation. He delivered them from slavery. He put up with them in the wilderness. He gave them a land. 
He gave them judges. Verse 21, he gave them a king. Now, I want to stop here for just a second. Paul didn't, and Luke doesn't editorialize here, but we can, and we're going to. I don't want you to miss this. Perhaps the people sitting there would have gotten it, but this is a point not to be missed. God's active involvement in the story of his people, yes, but between the lines and for those who know the history more than that, Israel wanted a king. What did that really signify, do you think? It signified that they wanted to be like other nations. Do you remember being that way kind of as a teenager maybe? One of your friends had something and you wanted to have it because they had it because that's what the cool kids do. You don't remember that? They want to be like the other nations, even though God has chosen them, set them apart, told them, you're going to be unique among all the peoples of the earth. You're going to be mine. I've chosen you. But no, no, we want to be like them. We don't want to be the way that you want us to be. More sadly, that they didn't want the king they already had, which is God. That's the real problem there. Oh, we want a king, and God is in heaven saying, you've got a king. I am your king. And they're saying, you're not enough. We want something different. We want something else. Enjoy David men smoke on the mountain. She interprets the first of the Ten Commandments very wisely, I think. When God says, you shall have no other gods before me, what God is saying is, you shall have me. And what Israel said to their creator, what Israel said to their deliverer God, in essence, is we don't want you. Rather like the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15 who demands his inheritance from his father, which is tantamount to saying his father's still alive. So saying, Father, give me my inheritance is tantamount to saying, I wish you were dead. I wish you weren't my dad. I wish, God, you weren't my king. Give us another king, you see. This is how in our sinful nature we treat the God who made us. This is how we treat the God who loves us. We hold him off. We reject his lordship. And yet, as he put up with the grumbling and complaining in the wilderness and still came through with food and with water and shoes for the journey that wouldn't wear out or or even before that whole wilderness wandering delivery from slavery thing, he provided animal skins, remember that, to cover the nakedness of Adam and Eve after their sin in the garden. After he was rejected in the garden, he went and above and beyond and provided for them. And right there in that garden, we learn early on that to cover sin, blood would have to be shed. And Paul testifies here not just to the activity of God, but to the steadfast, patient, covenant-keeping love of God toward those who reject him. The people reject him, and they ask for a king, and what does he do? He gives them one. The first one doesn't work out. Eventually, he raises up a better king, David. And from David's line, when the fullness of time had come, he brought forth a savior. 
Jesus. The people who should have recognized this Savior didn't. The ones like those to whom Paul was speaking right here in Acts chapter 13. The ones who had the scriptures. One who sat week after week after week listening to the prophets and, and the law. These ones who should have recognized him didn't recognize him. And they killed the Savior. And he was buried. But God raised him from the dead. Fulfilling what he promised to the fathers for the children. As good as King David was, friends, when he went to the grave, he didn't get up. When he went to the grave, that was it. But Jesus is a better king. Jesus is a greater king. Jesus is a king of kings. He is the promised Messiah, and it's attested to by his resurrection. He has conquered death. He is alive. And if you have your Bibles open, you look at verse 38. Paul brings this crescendo here, I think. Through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Now let's pause here just, just for a second. Now, reflect or, or emphasize some of the elements of what Paul is doing here as he presents the gospel, right? So we know this already. He was ready, he was willing, and he was able to give a defense for the hope within him. And that's not just because he was an apostle. That's because he's a Christian, okay? It's not, you can't say, well, Paul was really good at that because he was an apostle, because he got to spend, you know, a few years in the desert of Arabia being tutored by the Holy Spirit, well, that is not the skill set that he acquired there necessarily. I do think that helped him a lot when it came time to persevering and enduring. But Paul's able to give a defense because he is a Christian. When the door opened, he was obedient. He shared in context. He spoke in ways that connected the history and the experience and the values of his audience to the salvation message. He testified primarily to the activity of God and to the character of God. He shared the gospel. Is it really that simple, Scott? Yeah, it's really that. We make it complicated. You realize this, I hope, that whoever we talk to about Jesus, whatever, and I pray that you pray these prayers. I hope you do. I hope you wake up in the morning and say, Lord, whoever you want to cross, me to cross paths with today, whatever divine appointment you have set for me today, let me be faithful to it. And let me share your truth. And I hope you realize that when God answers those prayers, because if you pray for an open door, like Paul says to the Colossians, the door's opening. God loves those prayers. God's going to answer those prayers. And when he answers those prayers, I want you to understand this. Whoever you're talking to about Jesus, wherever they come from, whatever they believe, no matter how similar to you they might be or how different from you they might be, we all have certain commonalities. We all can boil some things down that we all have this in common, okay? For instance, we have a common history. We all do because we are made by God and we are made for God. And we, ha we have that in common. 
Now, somebody may not believe that. They, they may not believe that God made them. And that's a great opportunity for you to say, well, how do you think you got here? Let's talk about it. I, I, you, you, have a, you have an idea, and I have an idea. My idea is, is that a creator God made me, not only me, but everyone, every life in his image. I can speak to that. They can speak. Have a conversation. And the bottom line is we have a common history. We have a common problem. We may be very different, but we have a common problem. And that problem is this. We have all rejected God at one point or another. Every one of us. There's no righteous, the Bible says. There's not one righteous. There's not one who does everything right all the time. We've all rejected God as he has revealed himself in the Bible. Again, you may get an objection. I think some people, I've heard this, people say, well, I'm not against God. I haven't rejected God. What does the Bible say about that? You tell me. What does the Bible say? If you're not for God, that's what the Bible says. This is, this is, this is, we're only talking about what comes out of the Bible. But according to the Bible... We have a common history, and according to the Bible, we have a common problem. We've all rejected God. And the scripture calls that sin. And it says the consequences of our sin is death and eternal condemnation in hell. We all have a common solution. There is a common solution in front of us, and that is Jesus. He alone, of anyone who's ever lived on earth, was perfect and sinless, undeserving of death. And yet he offered himself as our sacrifice on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. So we are no longer debtors to sin. We are free. The solution to our common problem of sin is to believe what Jesus has done and to receive him as Savior no one else has or could die for you so you can live. Do you understand that? No one ever has or could die for you so you could live. Only Jesus. And I love how Paul explained this in his message to his Jewish brothers. Verses 38 and 39. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, through this Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. You see, these people have been trying to obtain righteousness before God by keeping the rules. By keeping the law. But that's not what the law does. Obviously, there's value in following the law. God gave us the law. But the law doesn't make one righteous. The law exposes one's unrighteousness. The law doesn't make you right with God. The law convinces you how wrong you are with God. Amen? That's what the law does. And that's what these people have been trying to do. Make themselves righteous by following. And when they fail, what do you do? Try harder. It's an awful cycle of futility. In some ways, the law becomes a taskmaster. And they become, or anybody who tries to follow it this way, becomes a servant of the law. 
becomes enslaved by the law. But Paul's saying, no, you don't have to do that anymore because if you believe in Jesus, you will be free. All the law does is prove that we are lawbreakers. And further, and this is the most important part, it doesn't atone for sin. Sin is a debt to God. When you and I sin, when we transgress, we we incur a debt to God. That debt has to be paid for. And the blood of the sacrifices that we read about in the Old Testament, it covered, catch this, it covered people's sins. But the blood of Jesus pays for them. That's the difference. The blood in the Old Testament is covering the sins. The blood of Jesus pays for the sins. So you don't have a debt to God anymore if you believe in Christ. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Now having said all that, Paul finishes his message with a warning for verses 40 and 41. Beware therefore lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look you scoffers be astounded and perish for I'm doing a work in your days. A work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. And without going into the history and the context of that quote, it comes from the book of Habakkuk. Let me just say, it's a warning against unbelief. Paul has shared the eternal story of God's plan for salvation. And then this is what he says to his audience. Beware, lest you hear this and don't believe it. Friend, we know the right response to the truth of God in Christ is to embrace it. Amen? It is to believe it. When the gospel is preached, we want everyone to believe it. That salvation is a free gift. Freedom from the penalty of your sins and eternal life can be yours if you will believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now that's another element of a good gospel presentation. I hope you've seen a few elements of a good gospel presentation here from Paul. And that is a call for response. Sometimes we call that an invitation. Sometimes uh, as simple as, as an exhortation, like the one Jesus gave. He said, repent and believe the gospel. Very simple. Repent and believe the gospel. Or the appeal of the prophet Isaiah, come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall become like, well, do you want your sins forgiven? Do you want those stains blotted out forever? Isaiah said, let's, reason, let's be reasonable. This is offered to you in Christ. Or, 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 or the pleading of the psalmist. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Beware, Paul says, beware of hearing this, but not believing it. Beware of hearing, but not being willing to believe what God is trying to tell you. The gospel requires a response. And let me say this, because I'm not sure we think of it this way. I I think we should. Everyone who hears the gospel responds. Everyone who ever hears the gospel responds. They make a choice, either to receive it or reject it. And each choice carries eternal consequence. Friend, when it comes to Jesus, how have you chosen? 
Because we have shared the gospel here. And you can't say that you haven't chosen. He is either your Lord and Savior or he's not. I hope he is. And if he's not, today would be a good day. Verse 42, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. Oh my goodness, this is the hope of every preacher. Oh, anybody sharing Jesus, you, they're begging for more. They said, no, Pastor, actually, you're like a minute over right now. You want to leave them wanting more for sure. What we don't ever want to do is drone on and on and on and fail to land the plane is what we say. You know, somehow we, 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 we still can manage to find a way to make God's word boring. It happens. We're all guilty. There's a story told about a lady who fell asleep in church during the sermon. And pointing to the man next to her, the minister said, Hey, would you please wake that woman up? He said, You put her to sleep, Reverend. You wake her up. Actually, later in this book, someone's going to fall asleep during, <laughs> during a sermon, but that has to do more with the timing of the worship service. It's going all night than it does maybe the content of the sermon. But listen, at least here in Pisidian Antioch, nobody's sleeping, okay? The people want to hear more. And beyond that, praise God, some had already come to believe because the gospel is the power of God to save. Last verse for today, verse 43. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Worship. Look at this now. Worship is over, but church is still happening. Isn't that beautiful? Many followed Paul and Barnabas. They wanted to keep talking about this. They wanted to keep talking about this, and they, they spoke with them. Notice, Paul and Barnabas spoke with them, didn't tell these new followers to receive the grace of God, but to continue in it, which means that they had responded to the grace of God. The gospel requires a response, and everyone who hears the gospel, as you have today, responds. And once again, we see it. And it's beautiful. And I hope it encourages you. We see it again in this story of the unstoppable word of God that through the faithful testimony of his servants, even here in Pisidian Antioch, some people believed and they were saved. Amen. Bow your heads with me, if you would, for just a moment of reflection and response. If you are here today and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, but that interests you, you have heard this gospel and you think, I didn't know that I was a sinner or I didn't know that I needed forgiveness. Or I've known it all along, but I've held him off because I wanted another king. But I'm ready now to embrace the king of kings. Please don't leave today without talking to me or Mike or 
any of our elders, or you, to be honest with you, you could talk with anybody who you're sitting beside. Don't leave today without making that sort of a decision, friend. Let's sing a song.